Um, I have loved watching the journey of Sam Wilson in the show, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Thank you. Okay, cool. I'm in the right room still. Good. All right. Um, and I'm sure everyone online is also like, woohoo. Yeah, great, great. I love you guys too. Um, so um, I'm going to go ahead and assume that this is not spoiler alert, mainly because um, it really wasn't a really well-kept secret, and also social media is social media, and it's been two weeks. So with that, I'm just going to say it. Sam Wilson ends up taking up the shield as Captain America. So, so and if I just ruined it for you, I am really sorry, um, but also they already have action figures at Walmart, so like that's hard to go with. So, it, um, so first of all, forgive me if I just ruined that for you online. Sorry about that. Please don't click off and immediately go to Disney+. Plus. But um, I don't just ruin that for the sake of spoiling things for you, but because it actually ties into where we're going in the message tonight. And here's how. That over the six-episode journey, Sam Wilson is on this journey of discovering what it means to be Captain America. So two years ago now, Endgame came out. And when Endgame came out, at the very end of that movie, you have this moment when Steve Rogers hands the shield to Sam Wilson. And in that moment, he is not just handing him a physical artifact. He is handing him the role and all that that role entails. The only problem was Sam wasn't ready for it yet. He had much to discover in his journey as a character over the course of the first season of Falcon and Winter Soldier. So through the episodes, he is not just learning about how to fight like Captain America or how to be awesome in certain ways like Captain America or how to wear red, white, and blue like Captain America. It wasn't about any of that stuff. It was about so much more. And then by the end of this season, you see that he is starting to get prepared for what this would look like. Because by him putting on the costume, by him suiting up, he is not just donning a new ensemble. He is not just picking up a new, uh, a new defensive weapon. What he is doing is he is stepping into all that it means to be this character, to fill this role. In other words, he is taking on the virtues of what it means to be Captain America. Now, that word virtue um, is a word that we're going to be talking about a lot, a lot tonight. Virtues are, in essence, moral foundations. They are specific characteristics that make up, that make up what we do, what we think, what, how we act. They're our guiding posts, things that we desire to embody. Now, it's one thing to might maybe know what is virtuous, but it's another to actually embody them and to begin to live them out. Now, we live in a world that is constantly reevaluating what is actually virtuous and in what context they apply at all. So like, for example, um, a common virtue is that honesty is the best policy, right? Like that's a decent virtue, except in so many spaces in our world, if you say that, you don't, you mean like honesty is usually the best policy, right? Because there's other areas in life where it starts to get a little grave for some of us. We're like, they might be like, well, sometimes you should kind of just say what's easy, you know, like that kind of mentality. So that makes it hard though, when we're evaluating what virtues actually are, because they're supposed to be a moral foundation, meaning they're a bedrock, meaning that they don't move, they don't shake. Now, that's the way our world typically thinks of virtues, and it can be very confusing to know what virtues are actually worth striving after. And for those of us who are Christians, followers of Jesus, we look to the scriptures and we ask, what are virtues that we are called to live in as followers of him? And even if we knew what they were, how do we actually go about living in them? 
And this is where Paul is going to be taking us into tonight as we continue our journey through the book of Colossians. So we are in Colossians chapter 3. Um, if you have a Bible, um, you feel free to open that up. Uh, if you have a digital version, we're in the English Standard Version. Um, that typically makes it easier just to be able to read along. And these are their scripture journals. We, are st- we still have a bunch left available, and you are more than welcome to take one at the end of the gathering um, by just talking to one of our blue shirts. Now, we are in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. But before we get there, let me do a quick recap of where we have been over the last couple of weeks. So last week, we discovered the radical call of Paul, that he was talking about that, in essence, there are two different kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of man, and there's the kingdom of God. And they are very different from one another. He calls it, he says, do not live any longer the things of this earth, but have your mind on the things that are above in heaven. So there's the kingdom of this earth, of humanity, and there's the kingdom of God, and they are diametrically opposed from one another. But then what he gets at is that in light of the truth that we have been rescued by the king, King Jesus, into his forever family, into his kingdom, in light of that fact, we should live with our eyes focused on his kingdom, no longer set on the kingdom down here, no longer focused on the things of this world. Because this kingdom is a false kingdom, but the kingdom of Jesus is the true kingdom. So then Paul gets specific, though, about what that looks like. And this is where we were at last week. He calls out two particular categories of sin. Uh, there, there are sins attached to sexual ethics and then sins attached to anger. And he began to exp- essentially say, these two sin categories that are often a struggle in your context, those are from the kingdom of this world. How, don't focus on those anymore. Focus on the things of the kingdom of Jesus. Allow that to transcend your heart and to allow you to transform your life. So now where we're at tonight is Paul is beginning to turn his attention, though, not just from the things that they are to put off. So put off these broken things, put off the old self, but now he's going to tell them what to put on, what things are actually good to live into. So these, what he's going to get into tonight is a list of five virtues that define the way, that are major parts of the way of Jesus' kingdom. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. Paul's goal was not to be comprehensive in this, right here in this space, but he is absolutely showing how essential each of these virtues are. So before we get to them, let's start in verse 12. So he says, put on then is God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So let's pause there for a second. So before we actually get to what the virtues are, let's, let's, Let's catch up on what he's already getting at. So he's starting by saying, then put on this, put on these then. Paul is calling them to suit up. Why? Because the old self no longer defines you. So you put off the old self and now put on the new self. Suit up into who you now are. Kind of like that's where the imagery, you see where I'm going with that, like the whole Sam Wilson thing. Like put on this new persona, put on this new outfit. This is the new self and he is here and he is available. And what Paul's getting at is he begins to describe the new self. So he's giving, he gives first three defining markers of the new self of a citizen of the kingdom of God. So first, what is it? He says, put on then as God's chosen ones. They are now God's chosen. They've been handpicked citizens of the kingdom of God. Now in the Old Testament, that language, God's chosen, 
would have, uh, was a hyperlink to, um, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. They were called and considered to be God's chosen people, that they were set apart so that the world around them would know that the God of Israel is different and his love is for them as well. That they were supposed to be chosen, not because the nation of Israel was so awesome, but because God is so awesome. And he wanted to do a redemptive work around the entire world through that nation. Now, in the New Testament, that exact same phrase, as he's referring to it here, refers to a new category, which is the family of God has now expanded from being an ethnic people group, the people of Israel, to a global people group that is a new family, the church those who would be adopted into the forever family of God, that all of those across ethnic groups could become a part of God's covenant family. That by the way, the church would now live in relation to God, in the relation to one another, in the relation with the world around them, they would demonstrate the way of Jesus to a world that is based on very different beliefs. So he is saying, you are God's chosen. And then the second, what does it say? It says they are holy, holy. To be holy is to be set apart. Now, that word holy, it comes with some connotation in our world, right? Like the entire idea of being, well, you're just holier than thou. Like that idea of being legalistic and judgmental or whatever. But that's not what this is getting at. They are holy. They have been set apart because of Jesus's incredible work. See, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you exactly where you are at. But he does not leave us where we are at. And it starts at the moment that we discover God's incredible love for us. It's not rooted in your goodness or mine. But when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected from the grave, he paid the debt of our unholiness, our unset apartness, so that we could be set apart with Jesus. He absorbed the stain of, of death that was on us and took it on himself. So now when God looks at us, he does no longer seize our previous bondage, our past mistakes, our current struggles, or even our future inadequacies. Instead, as Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he writes it this way, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus was holy. He was set apart. He was clean. He uh, He was wearing white garments and He took on our mud, our brokenness, our sin on himself so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he took our mud off of our clothes and put it on himself so that we could put on his clothes so that we could don the new self and live as righteous before God, that we could be set apart and holy. But not only does God see us as set apart and righteous and blameless like Jesus, but now through the power of the spirit of God living and active within us, we're actually empowered to live and to love in holiness more and more day by day. Isn't that crazy? Do you guys, I don't even begin to fathom how incredible of news that is. God's chosen people, holy, beloved. I love that word beloved. To be beloved, it means to be uniquely loved, to be seen and to be known and to be cared for, especially and uniquely. The Father's heart loves each and every one of us uniquely. And it's not based on your awesomeness, no offense. It's not about my desires or our resumes. It is completely and wholly because his love is that good and that infinite that we can be uniquely loved by the creator of the cosmos. 
Now, for some of you, that may be brand new news for you. Maybe you grew up in a faith tradition where this is so far from your understanding of God and his love for you. But for for those of us who begin to follow after Jesus, who have been adopted into his covenant family, you are God's chosen, holy and beloved. Now, for many of you, you are, this isn't new information for you. Uh, this you've heard time and time again, if you've been around Mosaic for very long or other churches uh, as well. So why then does Paul keep harping on the same things over and over and over again? Because this is kind of classic Paul, if you read a lot of his stuff, because oftentimes we can view the words of scripture and specifically the words of Paul as simply like prescriptive, that all Paul's interested in is getting you to stop doing this and start doing that. But whenever Paul is corrective or encouraging followers of Jesus, there's almost always a reminder to their truest identity. And that's what Paul's doing right here that he is reminding them of who they are before he gets into what they're supposed to become. So he starts on, put on then, is God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Know who you are as you know what you're putting on because this isn't about live virtuously, be good so that God would love you, so that you could be holy or beloved. It is because you are these things that you should do these things. So Put on then is God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And here is the list of five virtues that he wants us to put on then. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is who you are, so suit up. And what Paul is telling these followers of Jesus is that this is who you are now. And in light of that, put on, so let's go through this list, compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. To have a compassionate heart is to have deep sensitivity to the needs and the sorrows of others. To have tender mercy. I, I researched the Greek a little bit on this phrase, tender, um, compassionate hearts. And it literally, the best, the best way I could translate it is this. To care as sensitive as you would an internal organ. Okay, so let me put that in context. Like an internal organ, like a heart is pretty sensitive, right? Hence why it's good that we have like a rib cage that's protecting our hearts, right? So you have all of this that is protecting vital organs. That's a good thing. But imagine if your heart was on the outside. What do you think you would do? That, and that's a little bit gross, right? But imagine if it was on the outside or if it was really exposed, you'd probably be protecting it a lot, right? You'd probably have a lot of sensitivity or care for it. And this is what Paul is asking to be protected, have a compassionate heart, have a heart that is so sensitive for the needs and the sorrows of others, to have tender mercy. Now, kindness. Out of all this, I'm going to go ahead and imagine that you know what kindness is, right? You can probably think of an individual in your life that has been just like, like, just like, think about for a second, who is that person that just defines kindness in your mind? Maybe somebody who discipled you, a parent, uh, maybe a friend, um, a, a, a leader at, at work, whoever. Just think of that person who just like epitomizes kindness. Now, this is the best way that I've, I, I've heard kindness defined um, for our context, which is it is a Christ-like attitude toward others. A Christ-like attitude towards others. So think of the way that Jesus treats you and desires to demonstrate his love and kindness to you. 
and do that to others. So having a Christ-like attitude towards others, not frustrated, not like, oh, you're, you have another complaint, you're probably gonna mess it up again or whatever, right? Instead, no, that's not Jesus, right? What is Jesus like? Filled with grace and compassion and kindness, that his kindness is active in this. Now, if kindness is Christ-like attitude towards others, humility can be defined as Christ-like attitude towards yourself. Christ-like attitude towards yourself. Now, here's what I mean by that. Humility gets a bum rap, and everyone typically gets it wrong. Uh, uh, Me too. Because humility is not about beating yourself up. It's not about puffing yourself up. It's not about affirming yourself more. It is not about insulting yourself and telling yourself how bad you are all the time. There's a, a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's by C.S. Lewis, and it's, it's a fascinating book if you ever get a chance to read it. But basically, The Screwtape Letters is a book of, um, that it's a fictional account of one demon writing to another demon, kind of exposing some of the plans that a demon might try to do in affecting um, brokenness and dissent and frustration and hate in the world around us, okay? So in this book, C.S. Lewis writes that one devil writes to another one this way. He says, the enemy, so the enemy being God, so the enemy wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than if he had not done it at all. The enemy wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and as gratefully as in his neighbor talents, as in a a sunrise, an elephant, or as a waterfall. See, true gospel humility unshackles us from seeking our own recognition of our own awesomeness. Because it's not about us. It's as if, if you're working on a project with some coworkers and you, your efforts amounted to about 25% and your coworker um, amounts to about 75%, that you rejoice just as much in what he did or she did as in what you did. Because it's altogether irrelevant as far as who did it, just that it was done and it was done beautifully and well. See, humility is not hiding what you can do. And it's not hating who you are. It's thinking of yourself less and Jesus more. It's having Christ-like view towards yourself. Now, here's one way that I see humility typically done poorly with in the context of the church. Um, Oftentimes, we think of humility as hiding, whereas um, putting yourself down in some way of like self-deprecation and really putting yourself below um, and one way I often see it played out is in this. Um, and if this is you, then it, it's for you. Um, but we can get in this place where we're like, we're like just so encouraging towards others in the way that the spirit of God is moving through others. We're like, man, the way you are so encouraging and hospitable and the way you teach is so wonderful and the way that you do all these things is so encouraging. And then as soon as that person wants to encourage you, it's like you're like ducking through the, like all the compliments. You're like, yeah, I'm not gonna let you hit me with that one. And then you like run away because you can't, you don't wanna take the compliment. But can I just say that's not humility? You're focused on yourself. Stop it. Instead, see that the spirit of God is active and moving in you and in others. And that is a good thing. So it's not about thinking higher of yourself or lower of yourself. 
It's thinking more of Christ. It's making him known and him glorified. Humility. Now, there's a book. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Um, it's by Tim Keller. Uh, this book, if you can see how short it is, it is a solid um, bathroom read. It takes about 30 minutes to read it from cover to cover. And the words are big too, okay? Um, I highly recommend this book. I have read it probably five times over the last five years, and I'm going to need to read it at least once a year for the rest of my life, probably, because it's, I, I have a really thick head. Maybe you'll be a lot better at it. But this book is about what it means to tr- live in gospel humility and how that can bring you to a place of Christ-exalting joy, where you're not focused on yourself all the time. And I don't know about you, but that's definitely my story so often. Where I'm so focused on myself and what I'm getting and where I'm at and everything else about me. So I highly recommend this book. It's on Amazon for $5. It's pretty good. So, um, so we have compassionate heart. We have kindness. We have humility. Now, the last two qualities are the positive and the ne- negative outworking of kindness and humility. So you have meekness. Another word for meekness usually translated is gentleness. And this is the effect of gospel humility on one's approach to others. So here's what that means. Here's what that means. It means that the way we approach others is not filled with rudeness and arrogance, trying to enforce our own way. But instead we come with gentle humility into our conversations is the way we approach other people. And it pushes back against the way of the world that is, that is rude and arrogant and frustrated. And then we have patience. So that's the fifth one. Whereas patience is the effect that this gospel, this gospel humble kindness has on one's reaction to other people. This fights back against the temptation of resentment and anger. Patience is hard, Right? Patience is so hard because we want to get our way because we can be, feel so misunderstood and so frustrated. And patience fights back against those temptations. So this is a list of five virtues, five moral foundations for the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom, five virtues that we are called to suit up in. So put on these things. But I have a question for you. Does it strike you at all weird like it did me when I was studying this, that Paul puts so much emphasis on these five virtues, yet we usually treat these as if they are non-essential niceties that we do when they're convenient? Think about that. I'll start with me. You want to know how God has been instructing me in this over this last season of my life? I've been thinking about how much I desire to be understood before understanding others. It's when I talk more than asking questions of others to understand their thinking and their experiences that I am displaying an arrogance and a resistance that is not humility and it is not gentleness. I do it when I lose patience with someone that I disagree with, when I focus on how they didn't understand me and my ways and my views rather than me taking the step to understand them and their views first. That doesn't demonstrate patience or kindness. It's when I want others to understand my struggles and what I'm going through right now. And I don't truly take the time to hear what they have been struggling with and what they are living in right now. And for me to listen with a compassionate heart. I can often see these as non-essential niceties. 
humility, kindness, meekness. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to grow in those one day. Do we view them though as if they are like a spleen or an appendix or more like a heart? Think about that, an appendix. I looked up what like the, the root of the word appendix. It literally means something that's hanging on that's not essential. Like that is an appendix, right? Do you ever view kindness that way? What about when someone starts frustrating you? Do you let kindness just go right out the window and you're like, now we're gonna get good. And you're like, like, like those are virtues for sure, but not right now. But see, that's not the way the kingdom of God operates. That's not God's hope for us. And in our culture, in fact, when you just think about kindness, just think about how non-essential kindness seems. In our culture, on both sides of whatever conversation you seem to have anymore, we've gotten to the point that to be kind is viewed as weakness. To be kind is to be a pushover. And to be kind, it's almost like it's loving your enemy. Whoa. Now it sounds like Jesus, right? (laughs) But we are citizens of his kingdom. So we no longer live in the ways of the world. We put off that and we put on these things. And if Paul thought these things were easy, he wouldn't have to keep writing about them. (laughs) But he's writing about them so that we can get them through our skulls and into our hearts as well, that we would know that we are citizens of a new kingdom. We are called to suit up, to put on our new self. Now, Paul continues by talking about the way that this affects us as a community, that we are called to bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive Look at how those of us who follow after Jesus are called to interact with one another, bearing with one another, forgiving those who have a complaint against you within the family of God. See, how we treat those outside of the family of God, outside of the church, really does matter. But you know what in the scriptures we find out matters even more? The way we treat those within the family of God. Because, not because those outside are irrelevant, because, but because if we can't love those who are united to us in the family of God, then we have no hope at loving well those outside. How do we demonstrate this love in our community, in the local church? How do we demonstrate this? Does anyone find it easy to bear with people and their struggles when they are grateful? when they agree with you on everything, when they line up with you on where you think they should go and how they should handle their lives. But you see, to bear with one another is not that. It's not when it's easy. The very concept of bearing requires and necessitates difficulty. See, to bear with one another means even when, especially when it is not easy or convenient, when it is costly and frustrating, we persevere in relationship. We do not give up because we are a part of one family together. So we bear with one another. We demonstrate humility and gentleness and kindness and compassionate hearts. And we bear with one another. And it's hard, right? Which means it's messy and it's going to require forgiveness, which is what Paul is getting at at the end of this verse. That we are going to have to forgive one another when it's not easy, when it's really difficult. When you are trying to help someone and you find out that they've been talking behind your back and you're hurt. That's hard to forgive, right? And yet... As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
C.S. Lewis put it this way. If Christ has forgiven the unforgivable in you, then you can forgive the unforgivable in others. That is so hard though, right? To forgive unforgivable. But if we have in our minds how great the debt that was paid for us, then we can pay the debt for someone else through forgiveness. That's hard. That's costly. But that is ultimately what brings glory and honor to Jesus. So we don't give up. We persevere through. We bear with one another. We forgive even when they don't acknowledge their own faults. And we forgive. We don't give up. We endure with one another. And we suit up because we are made new. Now in verse 14, he gives the heart behind this entire concept. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on love. See, love is the foundational virtue that underpins the entire way of King Jesus. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with everything in you and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is important to Jesus. He goes on to spin it slightly a different way later on the night before his death is he tells his disciples that they will know that you are my disciples, my followers by your love for who? One another. Love matters. And this is the call that we in the family of God would be demonstrating radical love to one another when it's not easy, when it's not convenient, when it's costly, and when it requires to bear with one another. Because this is how we have been loved. God's not asking us to do anything that he has not already done for us and since given us the spirit so that we could do towards others. And what this also means as we, keep, as we continue on is that we are called to radically love and to bear with those that we don't agree with on a lot of things, except Jesus. That's the call. That's when it's hard to realize that we have so much in common, that we have so much to be united over, that we have so much to love about. And that's hard, right? Especially the just the idea that you have more in common with a fellow follower of Jesus who voted differently than you than you do with other individuals who are far from Jesus, but line up on your same party lines. That's hard, right? Why don't they? That's secondary because we are united in the family of God. And this only, this doesn't come from us. So this comes because his love has been received by us. And this is our call towards unity. Now, if you're sitting here thinking maybe well, this just sounds idealistic and completely unrealistic. I get it. And honestly, I would imagine Paul would too, this idea of bearing one another. One another. And then you're like, but you don't know what they did to me. <laughs> you don't know the hurt. You don't know the difficulty. You don't know the brokenness. But the reality is, is that even for Paul, as he sat in the middle of a culture that was far more opposed to the gospel than what we have experienced in our culture just yet, that he was speaking of an ideal. Because, by the way, the kingdom of God is idealistic. In fact, it is the ideal. The kingdom of God is ideal, and Jesus is the ideal. And this is the way that he lived, the way that he loved, the way that he cared for others, that he had a compassionate heart, that he had kindness, humility, gentleness. Patience. Now, that doesn't mean that we become a pushover. 
but it definitely doesn't mean that we respond in arrogance or harshness and call that the way of Jesus. It means following Jesus, learning to live and to love like him. Why? Because you are God's chosen, holy and beloved sons and daughters of the king of the cosmos. That's why. It's not so that you can earn anything from God. It's not because you need to prove anything to God. It's not that you owe him something. It is because this is now who you are. This is our identity in his family. This is what we now get to do. So suit up. Now let's finish it in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. See, we have been bound together in love as sons and daughters of the king. We are united citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. So suit up, put on these virtues, pursue peace, especially when it's not convenient, especially because genuine peace means wrestling through the difficult. Pursue peace and let that peace that only Jesus can bring up spring up in your soul like water within you. Because ultimately, as Paul says, what's the reason? Because we are one body. We are united together. We're not meant to be divided apart from one another. We are united with Jesus and with one another. So suit up. Now, that's beautiful, right? But out of this, what can possibly be our proper response? And be thankful. Gratitude. Gratitude is ultimately all that we can do in this because ultimately it's Jesus who gives us any ability to live and to love with hope from his heart, to pursue peace, to put on humility, patience, kindness, compassionate hearts. See, it's through Jesus alone that we have been reconciled to God and have any possibility to be reconciled to anyone else. But that requires remembrance. That requires something that we oftentimes don't do. Because again, we are a forgetful people. It takes constant remembrance. Remembering the love of Jesus allows us to impact our lives. Remembering what Jesus did on the cross and in the tomb to bring us into his family. Because we are a forgetful people. So tonight, we're going to take time to remember. To remember all that Jesus has done on our behalf, that his incredible love is actually for us and how we have hope in the present and the future because of him. So we're going to be doing something called communion. We're going to be participating in communion. And I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to head on up. Now, communion is a living metaphor. Jesus first instituted communion from taking from a traditional festival in the Jewish calendar called Passover. And in it, they were supposed to remember God's provision and his care for his people. And then Jesus took two symbolic parts of this Passover meal, the cup filled with wine and the bread and said, these things, they're about me. That I am the ultimate fulfillment of God's provision for his people. I am the ultimate love of God's people. I am the one who will protect. I am the one who is going to demonstrate radical generosity and care. So he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. The cup to symbolize God's wrath poured out on Jesus, him taking the wrath that was due for us. 
And then he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. The broken body for us. And this was the night before Jesus would go and actually live in that. So, so that's important to remember. In fact, Jesus said it was so important that he said, do this. Every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Because we are forgetful. Because for the message like tonight's, where you hear all about all these very practical things, being kind, um, understanding others, having gentleness and kindness and all and compassion, you, you hear all these things and it can easily become a space where we think, okay, either one, those are still irrelevant in my life. And if that's you, okay. And the second one would be if you are the kind of person that you're like, like me, okay, I need to be more kind. I need to be more humble. I need to figure this out. I need to pick myself up and be better. Because if that's you, that's not the freedom that we find in the gospel. This is what Jesus has done for you. The body broken, the blood poured out was for you so that you didn't have to work in any way for your righteousness. But instead, because you are now made righteous, you can live in freedom, that you could put on the new self. But it is only by his power and his strength and his love. And that's the good news of the gospel.